Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. This is David Hepworth. Welcome to The Word Podcast. Bit of a change from the usual routine this week as we talk to Roy Wilkinson about what it's like to manage British sea power with the active encouragement of a father in his 80s. And Rob Fitzpatrick, the author of this month's cover interview with Elton John on the odd things that strike you when you find yourself in the same room as a person who's both staggeringly familiar and yet also quite strange. But first, I've been talking to people who worked with the guitarist Gary Moore, who died this week. Belfast-born Gary Moore was a member of Thin Lizzy on more than one occasion, but he was also a rare case of a guitarist who managed to carve out a successful career as a solo act, while also commanding the respect of the bluesmen he personally admired. I began by talking to Stuart Bailey, the Belfast-based journalist and radio presenter, who talked about how Belfast shaped the young Gary Moore. Well, Gary Moore grew up in a place called East Bread Street, and East Bread Street uh, was in the shadow of the ropeworks, the ropeworks being the biggest ropeworks in the world at that stage. East Belfast was kind of designed to service the shipyards and all issues connected to maritime and sailing and engineering works, and it's a big old ugly part of town. And uh, Gary Gary uh, lived here, and it was just beside a little river called the Conswater River, which, if you follow it about 300 yards up the road, goes around the side of Van Morrison's old house at Hindford Street. So there's a kind of a ley line of, of East Belfast rock and roll goes around that area. Eric Bell, who later played in Thin Lizzy, was about a mile away as well. And uh, he later moved a, a little bit up the road, but, but certainly that was where he got his, his kind of early upbringing. And uh, there's a kind of a grit and a gir in, in, in kind of East Belfast, which I think translates into a lot of the musicians, and, and George Best, who, who comes from a similar part of town. And uh, he was a prodigious player by all accounts. He was kind of active at the age of eight and uh, saw the Beatles play at the Ritz in Belfast in 1963, um, stood on the chair trying to work out uh, what chords George Harrison was playing. And uh, I think that the hard day's night chord caused him a lot of consternation, and it was only years later when he met George, 
with the travelling Wilburys where he was able to decipher the exact way that uh, the, the opening chord of Hard Day's Night was played. And um, at the age of 13, then, he formed a band called the Beat Boys. His father was a ballroom owner in Hollywood, which is just up the road from, from Belfast. And uh, he was uh, a little round-faced kid with a pudding bowl haircut, and uh, he actually made his way into the, the rhythm and blues scene, which uh, focused around the Maritime Hotel, where Van Morrison and them had cut their reputation in 1964. And uh, people just looked at him in awe. They just said, this incredibly prodigious guy, he was playing blues music, you know, and he's barely out of um, uh, short trousers. Um, the other guys who would have been around that scene would have been uh, Eric Bell from Finn Lizzy and um, Rory Gallagher from Cork, but he used to play the Maritime quite a lot. So he was surrounded by these pretty powerful musicians. Henry McCulloch, who would later play with Joe Cocker's Grease Band, was, was kind of also kind of passing through. And um, he then was lured by a, a band called The Method um, down to Dublin. And then down in Dublin, he was snapped up by a band called Skid Row. Uh, the guy who, who, who led Skid Row was a, a fairly unique, uh, ebullient guy called Brush Shields. And they were just about to sack Phil Lynott because he had tonsillitis and he couldn't sing properly, according to Brush. And uh, they taught him how to play bass and sent him on his way. But Gary uh, joined uh, Skid Row, I think he was around 16, 17. They were managed by Clifford Davis, he also looked after Fleetwood Mac. And before they knew it, they were kind of hanging out with Frank Zappa and playing the Fillmore and, and kind of touring America. Um, and that's kind of where, where he kind of learned his chops, really. Um, he was mentored by Peter Green. And Peter Green uh, took a great shine to Gary. And as Peter Green was on his way out of Fleetwood Mac, there was this um, important moment where Peter Green handed him his the white Les Paul guitar where he had played all his favorite tunes on and said, here you are, Gary. And Gary was going, well, how much? And, and Peter was saying, well, no, no, this is my gift to you. So it was a kind of important little moment, really, that that occurred there. And... Um, uh, after that, Gary kind of he, he did two albums with Skid Row, which were kind of all right. Um, you know, again, there was, there was a lot of ideas going around, but maybe not the greatest songs in the world. Uh, did a solo album called Grinding Stone, and then in February, I think it was 1974, he got the call up for his first appearance with Vin Lizzy. Uh, he replaced Eric Bell, who had had a bit of a nervous breakdown. And uh, um, he, he kind of he was called Super Sub because Gary Geimer would step in and out of Finn Lizzie at short notice and leave at short notice. I think himself and Phil were very competitive and also bashing heads against each other quite a lot. Uh, he played on the track called Little Darling and he played on the early definitive version of Still In Love With You with Frankie Miller sharing vocals with Philip. And thereafter, he bounced in and out. He played uh, an American tour with Finn Lizzie in 77. Uh, supporting Queen, and then on 79, he was brought in to play on the Black Rose album, and um, that was probably the moment where his Irish traditional music became manifest. Um, part of the Dublin scene in, in the late 60s, early 70s, involved a band called Dr. Strangely Strange, who were friends of the Incredible String Band, and Gary played on their second album, Heavy Petting. But people around that time, there was, there was a club in Dublin called Slattery's where the rockers would you know, sit there and listen to folk music and, and Gary kind of drunk all that in as well. And uh, around 74, when he was in tour with Lizzie, he did this 
preface to Whiskey in the Jar where he would play Limerick Lamentation and the Mason's Apron and all these old folk songs and he would rock them up. And um, thereafter, that, that came in and out of his work uh, on regular intervals, as well as his jazz fusion and his, his hip-hop and whatever else took his, his mind at the time. So uh, East Belfast very much uh, mourning him. Belfast is mourning him at the minute. He was, he was kind of a son of our city and um, was back fairly often. And he had that George Best accent where there was a kind of a cosmopolitan gloss to it, but you would never, you scratch the surface and East Belfast would come out fairly, fairly quickly. During the 1980s, Gary spent most of his time pursuing success as a hard rock artist. Oddly enough, it was only when he returned to his first love, the blues, in 1990, that he found a huge new audience. John Wooler ran the Point Blank label, for which Moore recorded the platinum-selling Still Got the Blues. I spoke to John on the phone from Los Angeles. You know, it's funny, because when I first met him, obviously I knew he was a great guitar player, but, well completely blew me away was his ability in terms of, you know, he, I always saw him as a very kind of fast, flashy guitar player, you know, sort of thrashing away, but he could play slow blues better than anyone. It was just his tone, his sound. He really had a unique style. And, you know, I remember watching him with Buddy Guy at the side of the stage and, you know, really notable blues players just absolutely in a state of shock seeing him play the blues, slow blues. So what what really amazed me was his ability to change styles, and it wasn't just a sort of the heavy metal guitar player. It was this guy that had an amazing amount of tone and quality to his playing and simplicity, and just very very soulful. And you know, he just just incredible talent. I mean, he just really was an incredible player. And the more people that saw that side of him realized how great he was. It wasn't just all about cranking it up. He really had that ability to sort of you know, play such a diverse style and you could hear the influence of like the Peter Green, who was a very simple guitar player too. I mean, there was nothing flash. I mean, they all came from the sort of B.B. King school of less is more. And he really was just an incredible player, an amazing feel. Um, so that was the biggest thing that struck me was really that, you know, his diversity as a player wasn't just all about full on all the time. It was it, the subtlety in his playing was incredible. And, you know, as I say, he got a lot of respect from the blues community when he actually heard and played the style of music. What, what sort of, how would you just, how would you describe, I'll say that again, how would, you, how would you describe his personality? He, he was always fairly low-key, you know, we always had a good chat, I mean, you know, he wasn't the sort of over-the-top rock or anything like that, he was, a, you know, when I knew him, he was a family guy, you know, he'd arrive, you know, he was very diligent in terms of his work ethic, you know, he'd re- rehearse, he was low-key, um, you know, and you know, as I say, I stayed with him, you know, at, at his house in, in America, and you know, it was, it was always just low key, quiet, cool guy. You know, there was, it wasn't. Um, that's how I, rec- you know, remember him by just you know being a family guy and just hanging out, and you know, loved his music and very strong work ethic. You know, cared about what he was doing, worked hard at it. 
and that, you know, that was it. Used to be so easy. Gary Moore playing the blues. After recording a number of albums in the same idiom, including one dedicated to the idol of his childhood years, Peter Green, by 1999 he was tempted to try something very different. Inspired by a new girlfriend with a younger taste, he tried his hands at A Different Beat, a record that involved nods to electronic dance music. His PR at the time was Alan Robinson. I started working with Gary Moore as uh, basically his press officer uh, in 1999 at, uh, when I was at uh, the Castle Music Label, which was later bought by uh, Sanctuary. And Gary was promoting an album at the time called A Different Beat. Now, uh, the album, I suppose, was what you'd call um, something of a departure for Gary stylistically. Insofar as he'd started, he decided to experiment with dance rhythms um, you know, uh, which can, I think was a little bit challenging, A, for his core audience, and B, um, it didn't really break him through to a different kind of audience. It even had an instrumental tribute to Fat Boy Slim. And so I suppose you could say it was a challenging work. Um, interesting, though, and we, we did tie up some interviews for Gary uh, to, to promote it. And um, at the time, Gary uh, was had an apartment, I think, at Chelsea Harbour, and he used to do interviews at uh, a big, a huge sort of rock star hotel. Rock stars and football players tend to stay there, I believe. And anyway, we did interviews there. Now, I fell foul of Gary's rather um, hair-trigger temperament um, over an issue which I'm still, uh, to this day, not quite sure about. Suffice it to say that we nearly had a punch-up in, uh, in the hotel on the way up to the suite where he was going to be interviewed. But I found working with Gary, that if he could, uh, if he was in one of his moods, which he, he could be, you could steer him towards um, a sort of lighter frame of mind by getting him to talk about Phil Linnett, uh, his former colleague in St. Lizzie, of course. And he, uh, when he did do that, he ended up getting very kind of dewy-eyed and um, um, sort of, uh, well, reflective on, uh, on Phil. And Phil, even though they had a bit of a falling out, uh, when they le- when he left St. Lizzie in 1979, they still remained very, very good friends. <clears throat> when Phil and, it, uh, and uh, Gary parted ways uh, in St. Lizzie, um, Gary to- uh, told me that his version of the story, but I also heard another version of the story by Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis used to share a flat with Phil and it when he was stationed over here in the mid-70s with that band Clover. And... Um, so when Huey Lewis and the News were on the way to becoming sort of mega stars in the USA, they opened for Thin Lizzy an open-air festival in uh, the United States in early 70, in mid-79. And basically, uh, Phil and Huey met up, and Phil said, you know, why don't you come back to me trailer for a drink after the gig? So Thin Lizzy did the set, and uh, Huey and the guys went back to the trailer. But just in front of them was Gary Moore, Gary knocked on the, uh, Phil's door, the trailer door opened, and Phil motioned to Huey and the guy said, just wait here, lads, I've got to have a chat with Gary. So he closed the door, and then there was the old muffled sounds of uh, shouting, um, blows being exchanged, and the trailer rocking a little. The door burst open, Gary Moore walked out, clutching his bloodied face, 
and Phil said to the guys, come on in, fellas, and have a drink. I just sacked Gary. And that was the, uh, I think it had been a difficult show, a difficult uh, few gigs. And I think that was the tour when uh, Majua got the call to replace Gary Moore very, uh, at very short notice and uh, complete the rest of the tour. But despite that kind of falling out, they remained good friends right until Phil and, Phil and its death, of course. And, uh, you know, as I say, Gary was uh, extremely affectionate uh, about Phil. Also, uh, Gary, uh, I think in, in the late in the late 79, uh, again through Phil, he got very chummy with uh, Steve Jones and Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols. And I think Gary always thought, and he, he certainly said so in conversations I've had with him, that he always felt with Thin Lizzy was some kind of missing link between the kind of early 70s hard rock bands and punk, certainly in terms of the attitude. And he got on very well with Steve Jones and showed him a few uh, uh, licks and tricks. But he said that the, the, the bad side of that relationship was Steve Jones was forever phoning up saying, I've just nicked a guitar. Do you want to buy it? So he was always like, uh, you know, potentially on the receiving end of uh, stolen goods from his relationship with Steve Jones. Gary, being a guitarist, tools of his trade, he was an inveterate shopper for guitars. And he told me he was in uh, Chandler's guitar shop, which I think's in Kew in uh, West London uh, one day. And... You know, Gary was also you know, ha uh, having played uh, in very loud rock bands and suffering from tinnitus and, and deaf and had to play very, very loud. She was in a store trying out a guitar and the telephone rang in the uh, channel. So the sales assistant picked it up and he, he shouted it over. He said, Gary, he said, well, he said, a fellow on the phone wants to hear a guitar solo out of waiting for an alibi. He said, can you do it? So he duly obliged, played it note perfect. And then the sales assistant said, oh, that's enough, lads. That's enough, Gary. Thanks. And put the phone down. And Gary said, well, who was that? And he said, well, it was Johnny Marr. Johnny Marr, no less, of the Smith. And it always uh, amuses me. If you listen to the guitar solo on Smith's Shoplifters of the World Unite, that is pure Tim Lizzy. <laughs> Podcast: Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. At the back of every issue of The Word is a feature called First Person, in which a writer recollects an occasion when their personal life intersected with the entertainment business with memorable consequences. In the new issue, Roy Wilkinson writes about his time managing British Sea Power, the band that was fronted by his two brothers. And, as he described it, if that wasn't complicated enough... Father came too. I, I used to manage the band British Sea Power. Um, basically, got going fully in about 2001 when I signed in Rough Trade. My two youngest brothers. I come from a family of um, six children. Two youngest brothers. They were the two. Um, are the two band singers, uh, Jan Scott Wilkinson and Neil Hamilton Wilkinson. So far, so kind of normal. Hardly that unusual to have, you know, siblings in bands and indeed uh, family members kind of managing their, their siblings. 
slightly unusual thing, the thing that was a bit out with the norm with uh, with British Sea Power, was our father, who was kind of, um, by the time the band you know, really got going and began to pick up a little bit of interest, etc., he was um, he was approaching 80, and he, first thing, took a really inordinately keen interest in the band. I mean, the sort of, you know, the old um, song or phrase, don't put your, your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington, or whatever it was. He was the exact inverse of this. He was just absolute relish to them. The fact that his, his two young sons were, were suddenly in this rock band that was having a little bit of impact in the world. So he was really you know, madly keen on them. But the, beyond that, the really unusual thing was the way he, um, at the kind of age of 80, began to take an interest in the, in the surrounding rock milieu you know, particularly the kind of um, indie rock world, world of alternative rock. He started reading, you know, any any biography he gets his hands on, uh, you know, from Nirvana to Sid Barrett to um, to Nick Cave, Manic Street Preachers, the Smiths, basically, you know, kind of classic uh, alt rock musicians and uh, sources, Neil Young, anyone like that, and um, just became quite a kind of uh, self-instructed octogenarian you know enthusiast for indie rock music um, always talking about it and uh, going on about it almost to the extent that he was going about British sea power I kind of he's come up with a really quite unusual thing so one, one the most uh, striking thing or one of the most striking incidents and the kind of thing that uh, gave a sort of title for this um, a book I'm writing about this uh, this family story is um, I used to kind of get, get, get discouraged when I was managing a band, and uh, one day he was trying to kind of uh, inspire me and uh, you know and explain it was all worthwhile. And uh, we were in a sort of family house at the time, and I was just sort of you know saying you know the uh, this was a bit worrying, uh, money was running out on this front or whatever, the kind of usual sort of quotidian travails that you could that come in any kind of job really, you know. But he was explaining to me, oh, you know, carry you carry on, it's all fine, and he sort of put his arm around my shoulder. And he said, you know, just uh, don't worry about anything. Do it for your mum. Do it for the butthole surfers. And, which immediately didn't make you laugh, just to hear him kind of referencing the butthole surfers, who, you know, kind of weird um, band from Texas, very extreme nutty band, famed for their just, you know, really wild hedonism, like lunatic kamikaze behaviour. He was a bit of a, you could say, a frustrated novelist, basically, himself. He was um, someone, you know, he's from Sunderland, a working-class parent. His dad was a, a builder, basically, and, and dad had, you know, left school at uh, 14 or whatever. But given that fact, you know, to see his, his, uh, his, his two young sons suddenly making some kind of impression in, in some broadly similar world, which is absolutely fascinating for him. And uh, it, it was very much, it was very much a family story. The band... Um, kind of coalesced story began in terms of his, this kind of auxiliary uh, rock, uh, you know, manager almost. He was kind of almost like an auxiliary manager to the band. He was always piping in with kind of, you know, variously odd, but uh, kind of invigorating suggestions about how they should and shouldn't do things. He was always giving advice and uh, you just, you know, you'd sort of be analyzing their songs in, uh, in great depth and then sort of comparing them sort of methodically um, with Smith's lyrics and saying why they were or weren't as good as Smith's lyrics. 
and uh, you know, this kind of makes you all guy. It's always felt continually strange or continually interesting, and you just be coming out with uh, almost any any peer or potential rival of British sea power would kind of um, be dismissed. You know, whereas you would like people like Iggy Pop and Mick Cave. Mick Cave seems to particularly take a, 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 an interest in a great enthusiasm for any potential peers of um, British Sea Power were kind of routinely dismissed. So I remember him listening to the strokes and he was kinda, of, you know, he was kinda of like he seemed to understand there was quality here. He was he was a you know, his dad was someone who was uh, very keen on Sinatra, people like this. And uh Julian Casablancas, you know, he has he has got you know, he was a bit of a song man in the old tradition. And dad could pick up the quality there. But on the other hand he would turn around and say stuff like yeah, it's good. It's good, but you know, when it comes down to it, it's Kentucky fr- fucking fried chicken. Wilkinson's book, Do It For Your Mum, a story of British sea power, rock dreams and family farce, will be published later this year. The new issue of The Word comes out today. Inside you'll find Paul Denoyer writing about Alan Lomax, Ian Rankin talking to the Phantom Band, Eamon Ford meeting the emerging talent of Licky Lee and James Med on PJ Harvey's new record. Elton John is on the cover. Inside, he talks to Rob Fitzpatrick about what it's like to have the world's most incurable record-collecting habit. I asked Rob what were his first impressions of meeting Sir Elton Hercules John. He was bigger, physically bigger, than I thought he was going to be. He's a big guy, and I don't mean that in the, you know, that he's enormously rotund. He's just big. He's a very big presence. And, every, I mean, he's, he's got, he's, you know, big glasses... He's a big guy. He's got he had big shoes on, big rings. He's sort of, he's fairly burly, and I think as I said in the uh, I said in the piece, you know he, you know he looks like he could he could handle himself, and I I imagine that he was that you know the the amount of gigs in pubs and clubs and bars and things that that guy's done at uh, more than once would it have you know kicked off, and he would have had to uh, you know bang someone over the head with a be a tray. I don't know, maybe, but I would imagine that probably happened at some point. So that was the first thing that, that struck me. And, uh, he, he got me, I sat down right next, right next to him, pushed right up tight. I was, and, uh, the, we were, we were in the, the boardroom of, uh, rocket records and it was the massive glass table it looked like a, about a hundred people had been in there dining on almost exclusively on sort of, expensive muffins and cupcakes and and uh so it was like a it was like a sort of plague of locusts had steamed in and and uh, torn everything to pieces but he was uh and he just he just went off i asked i asked him like one question and and he was off and um mark had actually said to me beforehand because he interviewed him two or three times 
he goes, you know, when he goes, he's, it's like sort of riding a, it's like riding a wild horse. And he didn't say that. I just made that up. But it's, uh, it is a bit like riding wild. He just, he goes, and you have to kind of try and steer him between the, between the barriers. And uh, whereas with some people, I've interviewed a couple of people this week actually, who uh, is literally been like pulling teeth, and they've sort of frowned when I've asked them questions. And he was absolutely opposite. And he's every question was sort of chewed over and and sort of delighted upon and uh he just he'd be off and see to the point where when you're actually sitting there talking to him you're as an interview in as an interview situation you're thinking my, my goodness i don't know i don't know if i'm getting anything here at all because it's just it's this broadcast but then when you sit back and you listen to it and you then it's actually it's an incredible kind of detail and and it also the thing i hope that really came across is how much he really, really cares about music, and how I mean, he literally would sort of vibrate when he talked about the um, the records he loved and gigs he loved, and and I, there's a bit in it where he talks about um, the Ink Spots in Manchester and how everyone in London had thought the Ink Spots were going to be, you know, they would have sort of turned into some kind of you know cool kind of R and B outfit by the time they made it over, but they weren't. They were a real proper old old school sort of vocal troupe. And uh, so in London, it was a bit sort of bit of a bit of a chore. But when they went to Manchester, all the kids in Manchester had sort of researched them and and listened to the old seventy eights and were carrying these old guys around the room while they were sort of literally crying with pleasure at the fact that someone actually cared what they were doing. And it's sort of those kind of he's got an incredible kind of memory for detail for for those kind of things that obviously moved him. And uh, that was sort of endlessly interesting and he basically he had his little dog there with him who ran around ran around at our feet eating biscuit crumbs and he just he just went on on off and off and off and it was it was it was kind of almost exhausting actually and then we got to the end about about an hour or so later we'd done and uh it was it was uh he finished up talking about leon russell and we talked about leon russell quite a few times during the interview but he was talking about buying him a bus and they're touring again uh this year and also talking a lot about how you know they had a they had a sort of a similar a similar kind of start really you know they played with a lot of different people and they played a lot of, you know in bands and they sort of toured a lot without a great deal of success to start with and then of course Elton's career went huge and Leon's didn't really um or as he did for a while and then you know he was sort of for but he's been basically as he said in the piece been sort of playing toilets for 35 years which doesn't sound like a lot of fun really when you Think about it like that. So he talked a lot about that, about buying him a new bus and how they're going to come together to play. And uh, it was it was really, it was a very kind of, there's obviously a real, a huge amount of kind of respect there. And obviously there's also, for Elton's respect for Leon, but also there's a, you could sense that Leon really does feel kind of saved, if that's not too uh, dramatic a word, by um, by Elton's, care and attention and uh what he's doing to kind of you know help his old buddy out and um so we talked yeah talked quite a bit about the union the new record and, and what they're doing with uh, what their plans for that are in the future which it seems to be very much a kind of an, an ongoing situation with the two of them i don't think it's you know going to be this and then it's waving goodbye and i'll never see each other again it seems to be a a long-term plan for the pair of them but he was a, a very very entertaining guy and uh, it would be 
a great pleasure to speak to you again at some point. Or maybe I will. Maybe we'll talk about something else next time. But I don't know. Nobody ever tells you when love is dying. When love is dying, it just gets a little colder, and we stop trying. We stop trying. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.